and this is Fiona Cuthbertson coming from the pod to record Off the Cuff. Today we're joined by Dr Alan Mendoza. As well as being a councillor on Westminster City Council, he is co-founder of the Henry Jackson Society, a think tank that produces strategic reports and stats in order to guide government policy, ensuring it's effective and not just populist. He has quite the media image, having contributed to City AM, The Times, The Telegraph, The Daily Mail, The Sun and a host of international newspapers and magazines. He's also featured on BBC, Sky, CNBC, Al Jazeera, Bloomberg, LBC and Talk Radio. And of course now he can add off the cuff to the list. Well, what a lucky man. Alan, welcome to the show. Hello Fiona, lovely to be with you. Thank you very much. As I say in my introduction, you co-founded the Henry Jackson Society and you're currently a councillor on Westminster and so you're very involved in party politics as well. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now? Well, it's been a wild journey and I want to separate the two parts because my role at the Henry Jackson Society is a non-partisan one and we work, of course, across the board with parliamentarians and others of every political stripe, basically. So the two need to be you know, kind of taken apart. But if you want to start with the Henry Jackson Society you know, sort of story, this started back in Cambridge. A group of students and one academic, Brendan Sims, basically decided that they were going to do something about British foreign policy at the time of the Iraq war. And they'd all seen how that had become such a divisive issue that we felt we needed to take a broader view of foreign policy, talk about what Britain's traditions were in this area, what more we could achieve in the world, and just take the sting out. So we you know, set up a website, basically, did a launch, and rather to our, frankly, our surprise, it developed into quite a major thing. Now, it didn't have my accident. I came out of my studies and took it to London from Cambridge. And over a period of nearly 20 years now, uh, we've built it up to be an um, effective organisation of foreign policy, the international relations, the sort of social cohesion sphere domestically as well. And we're able to do all those media things that you, of course, have mentioned. We do frequent things in Parliament. We've had examples of changing legislation. But it's been a long journey. You know, it started off basically in my bedroom. Political side, I was always interested in politics. I was always uh, fascinated even in my teens by what was going on in the world. And over a period of time, I, I sort of worked out my views were conservative ones rather than others. Joined the Conservative Party at a very bad time in the party's history, 1995, not exactly a time most people would have been joining. And I was a councillor in uh, the London Borough of Brent, chaired the Conservative Association in Cambridge at the university, stood for Parliament at one point, and then returned to the council scene in Westminster in 2022 because I thought, you know, about time to start contributing again. But it's you know, interesting how politics works and how the changes in politics have occurred over that time. If I look back over, say, 30 years, there's been a dramatic shift, I think, in political views and how politics is carried out. But it is enduringly satisfying to be a councillor in the sense that you are making a real difference to a local area and the lives of residents. And I'm very much enjoying that. Absolutely. And I noticed that you've been working hard on retail crime, for example, which is something that I've been involved with as well. And so last Wednesday, we got the Prime Minister's reassurance that he expects a thorough and zero tolerance response from the police on this issue. But as I've said before, a recent report by the British Independent Retail Association shows that 82% of retailers don't even bother reporting physical attacks. So what do your retailers locally feel would make them report such crimes? You've got to have, obviously, visible policing, really, to encourage people. 
to, to sort of think that actually there will be a response if you report something. More than that, that people will actually pop in to their local retailers, the police and uh, local representatives, have a chat, you know, see what's going on on a regular basis, speak to locals as well, and just build up the sense of community again. I feel in many cases we've lost that community sense. And I think that, you know, kind of reflects people's loss of trust in institutions like the police. And therefore, it's no surprise, say, why retailers might not be bothering to report something because they feel nothing will happen. And I think in general, I think we've seen over the past few years some concerns about, you know, the way that policing takes place. Are all crimes being investigated equally? Probably not, judging by the evidence we've seen. You know, we, we get leaks here and there from what the Metropolitan Police might be doing or might not be doing. We see government policies sometimes changing on subjects. We need clarity, consistency and a sense above all that the law will be applied. If you, if you do that, I think retailers will feel more confidence in their own safety and an ability to report these things as well. And what other issues are affecting you locally? Like most local areas, you get a mix of planning problems to development issues. For example, I, early morning I was out looking at potholes in roads, very exciting I know, but important because you get them filled and you, you therefore save on accidents or on a worse build down the line. You know, there are always things happening in the local area, I and mean, we've got quite interesting. My ward is Abbey Road for the Beatles at the studio. So you get a lot of tourists coming and crime is a, is a fear, but you know, fortunately, uh, it is a lesser level than many of the areas around. So I think we're doing a fairly good job of working with the community to resolve some of the obvious issues and just make sure that some of the little niggling difficulties that make people's lives so annoying, you know, my rubbish isn't collected, there's a litter strewn across the street, you know, the leaf dumps that are happening from trees, you know, they're dangerous. If you leave leaves for too long, people can slip on them. There are, you know, there are other issues like renter bikes, the renter scooters being sort of left on pavements of people to trip over, matters like that i mean fortunately we're you know we don't have serious serious problems but if you allow minor problems to build up they become serious over time you end up with accidents you end up with bigger bills you end up with cars being damaged you end up with the you know, the degradation of a local area so i think every councillor who i know at least is very keen and assiduous on working their local area to make sure that problems are nipped in about early and that therefore everyone can get on with their lives without worrying about them would you say is the best example of cross-party change that's happened for you in Westminster? Westminster's curious because it was a Conservative-run authority for its entire existence until 2022. And I think the, the Labour administration that's come in has obviously never been in power before. Its council's never had the experience of being in power. And I think it'd be fair to say they've taken some you know, time fairly to, to get to grips with things. Obviously, they're going to be doing things differently to, to how previous Conservative administrations you know, ran things. But you can see evidence cross-party working on things like climate change, where it's not about party politics per se, but on things that you can see happening together in certain other places as well when it comes to things like homelessness or even some housing issues. You've got, you've got obvious areas where parties can work together locally without necessarily having to draw clear lines. But in other areas, you're going to have difference because that's nature of politics. There's no point in us all being the same because then what's the point of elections? You know, they have certain beliefs, we have certain beliefs. And it's about finding the areas where your beliefs won't be compromised, their beliefs won't be compromised, and you can actually work together for a better solution if indeed it's a compromisable area. So I think, you know, our side, and to be fair, theirs on certain issues are also looking for uh, that level of coexistence on certain local issues. But there'll be other areas where, of course, we'll have very differing views. And of course, having differing views is what makes us individuals. And if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Do you mean my council work? Well, either your council work or just generally. 
Well, look, more generally, I think most people who are involved in, in activities like mine, i.e. either working for charities or working in public service in some way, shape or form, are doing it because they want to have made a difference in either in your local area or in a bigger, nationally or internationally. If you want one line on my tombstone, it should say he made a difference. And what's the most important lesson you've learned over your career in order to help you achieve that? It's a linked lesson. You've got to work out when the best approach is to work with people to achieve change or whether you need to essentially be the trailblazer in change and take the hits that often accompany that in order to encourage others to follow, basically. I mean, the key to it is that no person is an island. You need support for whatever you do. So whichever of those methodologies you choose, it ultimately comes back to people. But it's about working out, I think, how best to work with people and through people so that collectively your power is sufficient to get that change done. And of course, with the Henry Jackson Society, you have a premise of two cheers for capitalism, but not everyone does agree with that. For example, the Tribune has said that capitalism means that decisions that shape society are made by those who own the wealth and the rest of us have to work for them to survive, which is neither freedom nor democracy. So what do you do when you're creating your research well, let's firstly just take that two cheers for capitalism bit, which is actually quite important. The, you know, the two cheers is interesting because you can read it either way, can't you? You can go, ah, very pro-capitalist, or you can actually say, well, that's not three cheers for capitalism. There's only two there. The reality is that capitalism has been the basis for the prosperity and success of our societies for the last 300 years. That's the reality of it. But is it a perfect system? Of course not. Nobody's ever suggested that it's a perfect system. Does it need constant working on? Of course, like anything, you can't just leave the economy to itself. We're not unabashed free marketeers, you know, uh, with no sort of sense that there can be any other kind of part of this. There, there has to be collaborative working there as well. So I think taking that as the lodestar, when you come to any kind of policy across the board, you've got to obviously think about what is it you're actually going to be looking at to do, because in theory, you could be tackling anything. Now, we don't have the resources to go across the board and tackle the entire problems of the world. So you've got to pick and choose, you know, drill down to go, well, what is it? What particular issues do you feel need attention? At that point, you do your research. You, of course, have to take into account lots of differing views here. You can't just go and, you know, sort of take up views that are just the ones that you might think are in your hypothesis, because obviously you start off with a hypothesis before you, you go then. And it may well be, be that at the end of the research process, your hypothesis is proven wrong, in which case you ought to be publishing the counter, <laughs> the reality of what you've discovered. So all the way through, you need to be looking at differing views, differing opinions, having conversations about them. And then at the end, of course, you go through peer review processes, where, again, these are checked and tested by academics in the field and others who will throw up issues and questions to make sure your research is as rigorous as possible. And once, you know, hopefully once that's concluded, you have a piece of research that, you know, can stand the test of time. It doesn't, of course, mean that everyone necessarily may may need to agree with this. It, it is important that whatever comes out at the end of it can at least be shown to be rigorously researched and rigorously put together. Absolutely. Obviously, the UK is not only in a cost of living crisis, but there are also conflicts abroad that have both economic and moral implications for the UK. One that you've commented on a lot would be attacks in Israel, the reaction from Israel and the right of Israel to self-defence. So what do you think the end game of each side should be? Well, I think the end game, Israel is quite rightly stated, and I think anyone with any humanity in the sense of obviously what is right in the world would agree with is that Hamas must be removed from Gaza on account of the atrocities they committed on 
October the 7th? Is it not possible for any liberal democracy to tolerate that degree of intrusion and, of course, invasion, essentially, into the lives of their citizens and not do something about it that is fairly long-term in nature. Simple, we're going to hit you back for something is not going to work. You have to remove the source of a threat. Obviously, removing Hamas is a difficult task. Kind of clear them out completely. You would need to control the Gaza Strip, and it's unclear whether the Israelis either can or will want to do that even. So I suspect what the Israelis are heading for is some kind of significant degradation of Hamas's command and control abilities and a sense that Hamas is no longer necessarily in control of what happens in the Gaza Strip, which would probably re- re- you know, uh, return its security deterrence and the sense for its citizens that something significant has happened in response to this attack. I mean, Hamas's goal is the opposite of that. It's to survive, basically, and to sort of come out of this saying they are still in control, they haven't been degraded. So in, in a sense, it is, this is a zero-sum game. One side you know, wins, the other loses, or, or you end up with a, with a stalemate on this. If we're serious about future prospects for Gaza, for the Palestinian people, the idea that Hamas can be a part of that, given the level of depravity they've stooped to, is just not feasible. So I think for anything to move in the Middle East now, Hamas must go as a first uh, set up, and then you've got to work out what happens next. But I think, you know, there is a pretty much a zero-sum game there. Israel needs victory. Hamas needs to for Israel not to have victory. And we're going to see which side emerges from that. Because obviously Hamas is a terrorist organisation. What do you think about the fact that people aren't referring to them as a terrorist organisation? Well, they're just wrong. I mean, it's that they are a legally prescribed terrorist organisation uh, across much of the Western world, including this country. So as a result, for you not to call them a terrorist organisation is making a political statement. That's their status in law. So if you don't want to call that, then it shows you clearly have some sympathy for what they're trying to do. And if if you're telling me you've got sympathy for people who murder civilians, rape civilians, kidnap civilians, I would suggest that you need to relook at your moral compass somewhat. The reality is that Hamas is a terrorist organisation. It's committed some of the worst human rights abuses we've seen in the 21st century on October the 7th. More than that, it was proud of what it did. It went in with cameras to, to show the world what Hamas was all about. The idea in anyone's book that it can be seen as either a partner going forward or anything short of what it is, which is this genocidal death cult, is, is for the birds. Hamas is what it is. So assuming that Hamas does get eliminated, do you feel that there can be a two-state solution? Well, I think obviously the optimal position in the Israeli-Palestinian saga is to find that two-state solution. That's clearly fascist community has been supportive of that for many years now. Um, it's still, on paper at least, what both sides are, say they're committed to. But there's been no progress in the last 15 years, mainly because you, you were looking at three states rather than two states. Uh, with a Hamas stand in Gaza, you had a, a Fatah entity in the West Bank, and then you had, of course, Israel. Now, if you can get rid of that third state, as it were, and return it to a two-state situation, which would, of course, require the Palestinian Authority to take, to take responsibility and indeed security control of Gaza, I think you then, at the end of this terrible process that we've seen since October the 7th, you might have the best chance of moving something forwards that you've had for 15 years. 
that will require, though, a mindset change on the part of everyone. I mean, I think in the past, Benjamin Netanyahu has been skittish on this idea of really, you know, does he really want a two-state solution? Is he doing things that will move towards that? I think, you know, if he's still around, I suspect he won't be at the end of this, given a, a massive intelligence failure and security failure occurred in his watch. But if he is, he'll need to change his tune. And the Palestinians, having frankly rejected every single peace deal on the table since the Oslo Accords, you know, the Camp David, the Y, the Ulmer plan, every single time they've said no, and Abu Mazen's been in charge for enough, you know, enough time now to, to work out his position. Unless they change their tune as well, we're not going to see that piece uh, happening. So there's going to need to be a, a significant transformation of attitudes. And it will need, I think, international community cooperation. Maybe it'll all be rolled in, uh, Fiona, into a giant uh, Saudi peace deal as well with, you know, with other states that will finally transform the Middle East. And if you can get a regional and then a local peace solution on the table, guaranteed by multiple powers, then you might actually start a chance finally of getting to that holy grail of that two-state solution, which we all, I think, in our heart of hearts know is where this needs to end up. We have a new foreign secretary with the selection of David Cameron, or Lord Cameron as he is now. So what will you be saying to him regarding this issue? Well, I think it's interesting that he, you know, one of his first trips has been to the Middle East. So he is cognizant of the importance of this region. For him, I would stress the UK's had historic ties to this region. It's got obviously the Israel relationship, we've got the Jordan relationship, we've got the Gulf States relationship, we've got long history uh, in the region, long ability to get things done. And were the Middle East to be resolved as a sort of major issue, and of course, I should stress that won't happen, Fiona, unless the Iranian threat and challenge is dealt with. That ultimately is what is the main destabilising force in the Middle East these days. But if it were to be that case, the Middle East could be a fulcrum of growth um, and the UK will be well placed to develop relations because of that. So my, my suggestion to Lord Cameron would be to engage to participate, to build on the warm relationships we have already, to make Britain's presence felt, but to do so in a way that is constructive rather than destructive. For a long time, I think the Foreign Office here had a very closed mentality to change in the Middle East and what was possible. And I think that harmed our ability to actually influence things and act upon things. And I think as a result, you know, we need to show that we are capable of embracing new thinking in the Middle East, even if that's not to the liking of the old mandarins who preferred the way things were, because only that new thinking is going to deliver a better Middle East for the future, but also an enhanced British role in that new Middle East. You talk about the fact that there needs to be some new thinking on this and people need to come together. But unfortunately, like Brexit, the situation in Gaza does seem to be a very divisive issue. So what would you say to those who oppose your views and how would you try and bring them on board in order that we can actually try and get some resolution to this terrible situation? Unfortunately, there's a lot of propaganda and disinformation that's going around. I think this is a, a broader problem. I think the Gaza element of it, though, is pretty significant. On social media uh, and, you know, in various outlets, you get snap judgments on things that are alleged to have happened, which turn out not to have happened afterwards. A good example early in this conflict was, of course, this alleged airstrike on a hospital by Israel, which turned out not to be that, despite being reported by everyone. It turned out very soon afterwards that it was actually a Palestinian rocket that misfired and landed there. But, you know, to use the old adage, a, a lie goes around half, halfway around the world before it can be challenged almost. And so we face a lot of propagandization in this. And my plea to everyone on this is to look at verification of information. I think when you start to get the verification of information, you begin to understand that it's not a black and white situation. It's a nuanced situation. And I perfectly, perfectly understand why people have strong views on this subject. 
But if they're not prepared to look at verifiable facts, then essentially all they're doing is potentially parroting lies and untruths. And I'm not sure that that's what they would intend to be doing. Certainly, it's not what I intend to ever be doing. And I think we need to all take a step back from divisive situations and not act in the spur of the moment and instead think about what might be happening, what, what might be the causes for why X or Y might be saying or doing something. And how can we then build a more effective version of reality rather than the snapshot judgments that are made very often? But you've got a strain of anti-Semitism in Western societies and other places that has re-emerged and people have used this as an excuse to be anti-Semitic in, in their activities. And I think there are other people who are frankly just not cognizant of the realities of the nuances of a conflict like this, which obviously has been going on not simply since October the 7th, but has had periodic flashpoints for a long time. The best outcome we could all be working for is a peaceful, you know, sort of two-state solution outcome. But I think it's it's strange to think that we could achieve that with Hamas still in power. Um, and, you know, people marching need to be quite clear about what they're marching for and also who they're marching with. If the person next to you is holding an anti-Semitic banner in one of these marches, you shouldn't be in the march. You should be either telling them to take it down and force them to do so, or you should be leaving the march. There are activities here which are surprising, which we didn't think would necessarily happen in contemporary Europe, and yet they are. You talk about the fact that there is a lot of false news and there's a lot of noise also around 24-hour news with Twitter and everybody constantly at social media. So some subjects can be done to death, others can be missed. And what do you feel that should be on the public's radar that isn't at the moment? In the 24-7 news coverage, you've got all sorts of things that do blip up and then go away again, basically. But if you were to look at two of the longer term threats that I don't think get the coverage that they they should do, I think internationally, the whole China question remains very mysteriously cloaked in sort of the wrong kind of discussion right now. I think it, if you look at the US, for example, there's a much more clear eyed view of what might be the outcome of the Chinese challenge internationally. I don't think we're really... Uh, focusing on that and understanding how it could impact on the UK. So there's that sort of issue. Have you stand firm, work with allies on China? And domestically, I think there is a real social integration problem. I think there is an, you know, kind of a, a failure to deal with, you know, mass migration. And we've seen figures again in the 600,000s of net migration in the past 12 months. You know, this is significant numbers of people coming into the country. And do we have integration strategies for them? Do we have infrastructure strategies for them? It's a subject that blips up when the figures are there and blips up when illegal boats come, but we're ignoring the longer term demographic effects and the shift in the country that might not be dealt with effectively and are happening almost by the by, happening by the front door because they're legal, but by the back door because they're not really being discussed by politicians. And I think it's about time we had a serious and principled discussion about the benefits of migration and the potential costs of migration and to talk about you know, whether if we think it's economic that it should be that we should put that first or whether we think social consequences can also occur or, or other factors we need to have a fair and free conversation about it which is not just about rhetoric but also about reality. Obviously as you say there are all these issues that are not being discussed by politicians anymore because people don't seem to be able to disagree so why do you think that people can't actually just look at the issues in a factual way in the same way that, for example, the Henry Jackson Society does? Well, I think unfortunately there are two or three reasons for this. The first is that in many of these cases, these are really big problems 
and often people are scared of engaging with them because they're so big and they, they're worried about where they might end up on the other side or if they can even, frankly, even if they can even solve them. So a, a frequent tactic is therefore, you know, in a, in a really big problem you don't want to engage with because there might not be an answer that you either like or think can happen, is that you ignore it or just kick it to the back and hope someone else will deal with it down the line. I think there is a lot of policies over time that we tend not to want to confront uh, straight off. The second reason when it comes to politicians doing this is because they sometimes feel there's not votes in it necessarily or you know the, the votes might come at the cost of other things in terms of how they might operate so again on the proper immigration debate there is I think a fear among some politicians to speak about the economic benefits of, of immigration because they think they'll get punished by the electorate for doing it you know what if you're a principal politician who believes in that tell the people what you think and try and convince them and that takes us to the third part which is there is just a very unpleasant public discourse at the moment where People tend to play the person, not the ball, to use a football analogy, and where you're called a racist for raising certain things, you're, you're you know, pushed the margins of debate, you could even be cancelled for doing so, for doing nothing more than raising an idea and having trying to have a serious conversation about it. And I think as long as, you know, sort of ideas discourse occurs in that sort of situation where people are fearful of raising an idea because they think they're going to, you know, have the gates of hell open up on them for people who don't want to discuss it on the other side because they're worried about the outcome and think the best way of doing that is by shutting down the debate rather than having the debate, we are going to struggle to have serious and sensible conversations in this country and beyond that matter because the, the mood is so volatile. We just have to do better and have to accept that, you know, we may disagree with each other but we should be defending each other's right to say something and talk about it and get to some kind of common conclusion or if not a common conclusion at least clear points where people can then make their minds up on their own basis but that has been a problem I think for 20 years or more and it's getting worse rather than better. So we are going into an election year so that makes all this public discourse even more important and I have to ask who do you think is going to win the next election and do you think social media will impact people's decisions? On who's going to win we're still potentially some time off. I mean, I've got no idea when the election is going to be. And look, my party political label tells you who I hope will win the election. Obviously, the polls are showing right now the Conservatives will not win the election, though. As the decision gets closer, people will look at the party's offerings more closely. I think that's clearly why, for example, the, the government decided now is the time to finally bring some tax cuts in, because they want that to filter through before any election happens, so people think about it carefully. You know, obviously the Labour Party's been undergoing a tremendous transformation uh, since the Corbyn years, but is that transformation complete? What does it really stand for on certain issues? That will have to be analysed and brought forward. We also forget that, you know, frankly, things are extremely volatile these days in politics. A poll lead of, you know, 15 points a year before an election or six months before an election does not translate into potentially a, a clear victory. And to give you two examples of that, back in 2017, Theresa May entered the election campaign that she called with a 20-point lead. Well, it didn't turn out that way. The day itself, people took a look at her offering and thought, no, we're not convinced, actually. I don't think the other guy deserves to win either, but we're just not convinced. And they elected a hung parliament. And back in 2019, we, we remember Boris's you know, smashing victory in 2019 at the end when he gets the eight seat majority. But don't forget, in the European elections of that year, six months before, the Conservatives were absolutely hammered. And we're getting more and more of those big swings. So I wouldn't like to put on a bet on who might win the election. I think it's really on both the main parties. It's on them to prove to the electorate that they are the ones who the electorate will want to elect. And that's going to be an interesting path over the next six to 12 months to see which of the parties ultimately is able to do that better, because I think that's a party that is going to be elected at the next election.
So you mentioned the fact that we have just had the autumn statement. Jeremy Hunt has started to reduce the eye-watering burden on businesses and families. So what other things do you think the government needs to do to inspire people to vote Conservative? As always, it's about showing action in areas, uh, being a low tax party for years, but with the tax burden having risen. Now the Conservatives have finally shown people, right, we're back there, we're here, biggest tax cut since the 80s. I suspect there'll be more to come early next year as well on that front to show that's what the party actually believes in. So the Conservatives will need, frankly, to put their money where their mouth is as it is and to show the British public that after 13, 14 years, they are still full of ideas, they are still full of delivery, and they are still a party that can appeal and understands what ordinary people want and are going through. That's a challenge. You know, there are various ways they've been able to you know, show that. You saw the five pledges that have been put out there. There'll be more pledges, I'm sure. And the Conservatives ultimately will go into the election as the governing party saying, well, here's our record. This is what we want to do going forwards. Judge us on what we've done and whether you believe that we're heading in the right direction. Do I think that can be done? Yes, I think the common consensus is, despite the large Labour poll leads, these are soft leads. I mentioned the volatility of the electorate. I think there is still a lot of questioning about where Labour uh, sits on various subjects. It may be that Keir Starmer comes out of that with, with flying colours, of course. I think, you know, many people think he's been quite impressive over the last few years in terms of how he's changed track. But there's still a long way to go. I think he's aware of that. I think the Labour Party is aware of that. I think the Conservative Party is aware it's got a long way to go to, to have that uh, position. It's certainly there for the taking still. But the Conservative Party will need to show it can deliver. So do you feel positive about the future? Well, I think humanity, there's a, there's huge possibilities. We haven't spoken about things like AI, for example, and nor will we start to get into that subject now. But if we think about where humanity could go in the next you know, 20 to 50 years, there's extraordinary potential for change and transformation in our societies. At the same time, am I more confident about the world than I was 20 years ago? The answer is no. Vast problems that have emerged in the last 20 years. It, it'll be very sad, Fiona, if... Uh, if our childhoods turn out to be the best it was for us in terms of you know, local and global situations. But clearly the world is a much more complicated place than it was 20 years ago. Clearly we've got many more threats from the unfree world, uh, the Russias, the Chinas, the Irans of this world, things like disinformation extremism that were not there in that period. And of course we've got potential for tremendous benefits as well. Everything, as always, remains in the balance. But this is why people do the sorts of things that uh, that, you know, that I do and try and get involved because you've got to intervene on the side of the good, as it were, because otherwise you can't expect to have a good result. You've got to be there front and centre, leading on the, uh, on the issues you think are important, participating, because if you don't do that, well, ultimately, you could end up with a much worse world than the one you'd like to live in or, and crucially, what your children and their children would like to live in too. And finally, what gives you the most hope for the next generation, your children, my children and the children of our listeners? Well, I think there have been vast changes, if you think, in terms of how, you know, what childhood is now. And I think some of those are good and some of those are bad. I think obviously we know about the, the potential problems of access to information and access to misinformation, disinformation, and also the, the problems that things like social media can cause, bullying and such like, and, and that sort of thing. On the plus side, never have young people been able to access so much information and have you know, such broad horizons as this generation of children, their children having more opportunity in this sort of way. So I think the positivity of this is that we have, we, you know, we could raise a whole 
set of very engaged, very hyper-aware children who grow into adults with a much better sense of what the world is actually about and how they can impact on it. And I think it's fascinating that so many young people now, you know, in their 20s and 30s, are capable of making the kinds of massive changes in society and beyond that was impossible, say, 20, 30 years ago, because people would have gone, you need 20 years experience to get there. Actually, all the changes we've seen in tech and beyond have brought things to people and been able to show younger people are able to make an impact. And I would quite convinced that our children will be even more brilliant than the generation who are now in their 20s, et cetera, and will have even more of an impact at a younger age. So I think that's a positive element here that we can see. And with that, we come to the end of another podcast. So, Alan, thank you very much for coming on and giving us such an insight into the complicated situation abroad and how important it is for communication between all sides to remain open. And thank you to the listeners who've hopefully enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it. As always, if you have any questions regarding the podcast, please feel free to comment. If you think it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. And if you feel that you need something to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book, Party Games, on Amazon. And on that note, I'll see you next time. Hope you've had a good week, one and all.